I'd uh, like to welcome everybody to the video game music session uh, today at EGX Rest. Um, my name's uh, Noob, um, also known as Evil Noob on Twitter. So do say hello. Uh, I think I've given most of you some cards, so they, they do come in some use. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, we're here to talk about some video game music, and I'd like to do some introductions. So over to you guys. Hi everyone, my name's David Houston. Uh, I'm a composer of games. I've been working for about seven years now, and uh, I'll hand it over to the more famous people now. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not famous, but uh, James Hannigan. Uh, I've been working in games for about 25 years, and uh, about the same duration as Richard. We go back a long way. Um, worked on more games than I can possibly mention. <laughs> Richard. Um, Richard Jakes is my name. Uh, I've been composing video game soundtracks since uh, July 1994, so similar to James. Um, started as an in-house at Sega back in the 90s, working on Saturn and Dreamcast titles, and then being uh, self-employed freelance for about 20 years or something. Um, yeah, that's me. Uh, my name is Joris Saman. Um, I actually started in this area here in Wapping. Um, Big Mad Brothers was my first gig. Um, kind of same time as you guys, about 20, 25 years. Um, freelance for the last 15 or so. Um, probably best known for my work on Horizon Zero Dawn, the Killzone series. Done a lot of work with Guerrilla Games. Um, other games like Fame Glory as well. Um, bits like that, really. Thank you very much. So I think combined, probably around about 100 years or so of experience up here. Don't make us feel that I'm laying the side down a little bit, I'm afraid, Pete. Yeah, check the maths there. I think it's <laughs> 80. 80 is good. <laughs> so with the introductions out of the way, um, I thought we'd start with kind of discussing the popularity of video game music. Certainly, um, it's certainly exploded over the last 10 years or so, but I can, you can kind of almost see it from the Wipeout days, really that really changed the game, where that kind of brought out not only the game, but the soundtrack as well. What do you think's happened? Um, <clears throat> I think there's two things, really. One is technology's evolved, so, you know, the, the quality of game soundtracks has been able mm. to get better and better and better. You know, it used to be that you had to fit it into a certain amount of RAM, uh, you might actually have to do it with an onboard sound chip. So the quality wasn't really there initially, even though you could write melodies that were really evocative. If you're doing it on really cheap hardware with, you know, you, you can use 16 megabytes for the samples, then you're never going to end up with something that sounds spectacular. Um, mm. I think some Japanese soundtrack purists might disagree with that. But music that sort of has a, has a wider appeal and not just for the, for the gaming crowd, you need that quality. Um, and I think that's what's happened in the last 10, 15 years is that the hardware has been able to support that quality. Um, composers like myself have been able to start using live musicians, which you know adds another certain quality to it, if that's what the soundtrack requires. Or you know, but, but basically, we kind of got to the point where the sky's the limit, really, in terms of what we can do, at least in terms of the music and the instruments and everything that we want to record. Um, there's no limit in that anymore, mm. um, I think, anyway. I mean, who would have thought, like? 20 years ago that people would be using Abbey Road and Air Studios and stuff and with live orchestras. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> well, you'd think that uh, the way the media reports on it that it's something new, but actually it's been going on for quite a long time already. Um, mm. But as Yara says, I mean, I think a turning point in the industry was the introduction of uh, digital audio, streaming audio, 
CD audio and uh, licensed music and games like Wipeout mm. had a lot of um, tracks that were some were written specifically for it, some were licensed, and you had uh, Grand Theft Auto. I suppose that it opened up a soundtrack market, and uh, that sort of means of production as well, um, you know, streamed music uh, permitted, sort of leveled the playing field with other industries. So the, ga uh, the games industry could start to market soundtracks, um, music that was extracted from the games and kind of repurposed mm. to listen to um, in isolation. But, I mean... That's also introduced a few issues, hasn't it? I mean, interesting issues. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because if you go back a bit further, I remember the first time I went to Japan, which was kind of in, I don't know, a long time ago, and um, I went to a record store in, in Tokyo, and um, literally there were hundreds and hundreds of soundtrack CDs, which were just of chip music that had literally just been built onto CD without any extra sort of effort or production. But they sold by the bucket load over there, because especially Japanese game fans, you know, they're, they're really into their soundtracks. But, um, you know, as the other uh, commentators have said, um, you know, since the days of Wipeout FIFA as well, of course, and, and games like that, it, it's become sort of commonplace now that the that gamers today, young gamers are growing up with this and they wouldn't know necessarily where it's sort of come from, where it's grow, grown up from, which is, you know, it's, they don't really need to, but they, everyone expects that quality, that humanity, or whether it's your favourite DJ or band, you know, that's just a given today. And it's funny to hit on the FIFA thing, I saw recently that, um, and I didn't realise this actually myself until recently, that they deliberately pick up-and-coming kind of bands and stuff, put them on that platform, and that they go stellar from there. Well, I think it was on um, one of the NFL games that EA made that they actually uh, launched a Green Day single on the game before it was actually available to the public, and then all the fans were singing it at their gig, and they've only ever been exposed to it in, in NFL. So. Yeah, and I, I guess that's the sort of interesting duality of licensed music, isn't it? Because on one hand, licensed music for game composers like us isn't great because if you're going to use a licensed track, that, yeah. that could potentially be a game track that, that we could have composed. Yeah. But That's at right. the same time, us as composers have kind of needed the exposure that licensed tracks have had to, to bring game music to the bigger masses. So there's both a benefit to it and, and a detriment to some degree in that, you know, if, if a game is full of, of licensed tracks, that sort of loses out the opportunity mm -hmm. for game composers. But as you're saying, that's sort of changing by allowing emerging bands to sort of ride that wave, as it were. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I remember, I mean, I used to work at EA. I started out in-house at EA. And I can remember that, um, you know, when that was becoming the thing, sort of licensed music in um, EA sports games and that sort of transition. But that sort of, it marks another... Uh, change as well, which is the sort of fragmentation in the um, the industry, the sort of the role of the music, you know, sort of um, music that was geared to sort of be a kind of jukebox effect in the game, or uh, music for linear games, sort of filmic music, um, chip music, as you say, it sort of started fragmenting and becoming uh, forming little niches and new markets. I mean, as we were talking about before we came in this room, it's how how difficult it is to define games music as a genre. You know, it means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. well, it's, it's interesting, as, you, as we were saying, um, it used to be that when you said, oh, I'm a games composer, I almost said it sort of apologetically, like, oh, I'm, I'm a games composer, you know. <laughs> and people kind of look at you and they go, oh, yeah, I know someone else that does ringtones. And you kind of go, that's, <laughs> that's not the same thing. But for a lot of people, it is. Because a game can be anything. It can be a game on your phone. It can be something you get with, I don't know, a box of cornflakes. It and can be a PlayStation game. You didn't know. one of you do Crazy Frog? 
Sorry? Didn't want you to do Crazy Frog? <laughs> no one's admitting that. Come on now. <laughs> but I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Is, is, is there's such a wide variety of games and, and ways to play games that for an outsider, yeah, how do you define it? It is really that's tricky to define that's it. Right, and they require different approaches to music. Um, you know, some, some games offer a, a really great vehicle for linear music that you know will have a life outside of the game and can be marketed as a soundtrack. But others just don't afford composers that opportunity at all. You know, it has to be so um, tightly integrated with the game that uh, so embedded in the experience, you, you barely know it's there, but it has an effect. You know, it's emotionally resonant, but you wouldn't necessarily listen to it outside of the game. So the art form has changed. You know, the approach to music as the function of music has changed. And I think that can be very true as well with technology, certainly now with like um, VR mm. and the advent of that. I mean, I was um, talking to some, some fellow composers the other day and we were talking about how, um, you know, really good game music, in our opinion, is, is music that's so carefully pl sort of plugged into the game and not just an afterthought, not just an accompaniment. I think that's why lots of people love video game music is because the immersion you get when you're playing a game, I mean, you know, you can always remember where you were... Um, where you're at in one particular level, where you heard this amazing piece of music, or when you're playing Zelda and you hear the theme, etc., yeah. etc., it's because you're you're listening to it in a way subliminally because it's it's about the experience and music makes such a huge part of that, um, and it's not just an accompaniment or an afterthought; it's actually an yeah. integral part of the experience. Definitely, I mean, as an example to that, one that will always stick with me uh, as a personal one was playing Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, mm. you know, Jessica's, Jessica Curry's score for that, um, which is beautifully evocative um, but then when you're playing it in game there are certain moments in that game that I did, really did make me cry um, there's a couple that you know just heartbreaking and well, those are things that people like me you know, and these guys will always remember something which is I've personally found has been happening increasingly often uh, in recent years and I guess this is a direct result of the popularity of game music is that some games are actually being created almost as a vehicle for music and that is the direct example of one of them. Mm. Like Rapture, to me, is essentially a three-hour uh, interactive music video. Yeah. Like it, the music is so fundamental mm. to the experience of that game. And there's, there's others, um, you know, obviously Journey, Absu, um, some of the Campo Santo stuff even. Um, and it's great, you know, if you, if you have that kind of opportunity to work on as a composer, like that, that is a dream come true. But equally, you are intrinsically bound to the parameters and the needs of the project that you're attached to. And it's not always about kind of, you know, using, using it as an advert for yourself. And sometimes you have to service the game and kind yeah. of, you know, take a, more of a background role. I think from that as well, um, and this is touching on a point that we're going to discuss in a bit, is when something is done so well like that, it can really feed into other things like making the person go out and buy the, you know, the, the vinyl of the thing, the soundtrack, you know, saying hello to the composer and saying thank you, all that kind of reaching out to them. You know, that is kind of what I think has changed certainly in the last 10 years within the... Uh, I mean, even in the short time that kind of I've been here, I remember I worked on Thomas Was Alone in 2012 now. Gosh. And I had loads of people talk to me afterwards and say, oh, can you do a vinyl, please? And I was like, no, I'm not going to do vinyl. I'll sell like 10 copies. I don't be <laughs> stupid. Like... Seven years ago, I didn't see the value in doing a vinyl. And then we re finally released it on vinyl a couple of years ago. It sold out in the morning. Yeah. Like, five years after yeah. the game actually came out. I know, and I've got mine. 
<laughs> it's just ridiculous. So that's something which has happened like super recently yeah. for me anyway. That's one that, that was the next thing I was looking to kind of discuss was the popularity of vinyl, certainly now in video game music. Um, I know that I'm on a, a, a closed group on Facebook about it and they are voracious about it. You know, something's coming out, they know about it. But particularly um, bootlegs, they seem to be quite, quite popular these days. I mean, they're not my thing personally, but... Well, the, the thing is with bootlegs, I mean, um, I get a lot of people emailing me saying, oh, can I buy the soundtrack to you know, such and such a game I worked on? But for, for us composers, sometimes it's frustrating that we don't necessarily have control over whether that soundtrack gets released or not. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of people emailing me a, a certain game title, which I won't mention, for me to sort of sign their copy. And I know they've just stolen it off the internet and printed their own cover. But it just shows that they, they love the music, they want to listen to it in, the, in their own way, away from the game. And uh, for composers, it's, it's absolutely flattering. Um, so I would say that um, you know, if we can all get more game soundtracks out there, and the you know the, the game publishers and developers are starting to see the value in it, because there is a there's a, there's a financial value as well as a PR value, I think. Um, and people do you know collect them. I'm, I'm going to hold up some things while the other commentators <laughs> are. Ah, <think>. yes. <laughs> some very nice things. Yeah, I mean, oh, nice. And oh, Richard has kindly said that afterwards he's going to give me these. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this was um, this is a limited edition Mass Effect, which um, EA put out uh, probably not not that long ago, two or three years. Mm. But it's six discs, and it's I'll show you the colours. It's just beautiful. And it's crazy because now you can buy, for example, oh, wow. oh lovely, that's awesome. Stuff like Okami and box sets, well, and so yeah, yeah, beautiful. And they will they would retail for maybe sixty pounds, but now yeah, this was, I think like, 140 Canadian dollars. Yeah, and they go for hundreds wow. and hundreds more now. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I've noticed a real shift as well in, in the initially game soundtracks. You know, on, on one of the you know the first Killzones I worked on, they were like, "No, we're not really that fussed about releasing it." They said, "Oh, you really should because there seems to be a real interest and appetite for it." And they're like, "No, it's not really." I think the department said, "Oh, it's not really within our remit to you know." So there wasn't really any interest in that. And then things started slowly appearing on YouTube, and people started ripping yeah. things from the game. And then on the second one, it kind of went, "Okay, well." will do it, but they, they didn't do any promotion for it. They, they, you know, there wasn't any, I think they might have done a sort of a, a little tweet maybe, mm -hmm. but there wasn't anything, and, and actually that soundtrack did quite well. Mm -hmm. And it was only when we got to Horizon that they actually said, no, and now we're gonna, we're noticing how, you know, how the music is sort of, uh, how much interest there is in the music and, and in, the, in things like the main theme, um, mm -hmm. which sort of started with Killzone, it was uh, the Killzone 3, had a very different main theme to the other pieces. It was quite a sad piece, and um, I'd written it at quite a difficult time. You know, the last bit of Kills and Three was very difficult for me. I had a, my mum passed away, so mm. I was not in a great space, and I felt like writing something completely different because there was always this raw sort of militaristic, you know, marshy stuff. And I thought I need I just need something different. The story is different. I'm gonna, you know, so it was just strings with a solo violin player on top. And I wrote it specifically in two parts because the second part was more militaristic, but the first part was just really sad and tragic. And I thought, well, if they don't like the first part, then they can just cut it off and we can just have the second part. And I put it on a beta of the game, released it, and because they weren't entirely sure. I, wrote, I sort of sent it to them and said, kind of went, well, it's very different to what you've done before. I'm not entirely sure this is going to work. Mm. And the beta went out and people went absolutely apeshit for it. And it was really nice, sort of a little boost I needed at the time to see how well that was received. And that was sort of the turning point where I thought, actually, 
you know, the music has got value. And it's not just monetary value, because soundtracks in general, unless the game's really popular, I don't think it's a big selling point for them. You know, it's, it, it pales in comparison to the marketing budget and everything else. So it's not, it's not a significant um, income for them. Mm, yeah. But I think now that's changed because they're seeing the promotional value it has in, in, in terms of allowing people, you know, if you release a soundtrack a couple of weeks before the game, people are already, especially if they're clamoring for it, they already have an opportunity to have something of that game, which is what we noticed with, with Horizon. There was a real appetite for any sort of merchandising before the oh, game yeah. came out. So. Yeah, I've got yeah. it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting as well that when you know that something's going to be released, it does actually change your approach to the composition as well. There's a kind of, we were talking about this earlier, there's a kind of tension between the needs of the game and the needs of the subsequent soundtrack release, because I can remember several times, say, working on the Harry Potter games um, and some of the Command and Conquer games that I've worked on, I you know, had to sort of keep that in mind, how I was going to stitch together. Uh, I, I knew they were going to release a soundtrack. And, um, you know, you had to keep it sort of functional as a soundtrack and, as a, and in the game itself. And do you find that difficult to do when you're kind of composing and producing? It's... It it's sort of, of you have to sort of have two heads on, like James mm. says, is absolutely right. Um, I mean, sequencing an album is very different to creating an interactive score, so you sort of have to have two heads on. And when I'm, like the game I'm on at the moment, I've already sort of got a separate um, session in my, in my uh, DAW template that's actually aimed at the soundtrack. But um, just what we were saying about value, um, I've just got a quick interesting story about how Hollywood and the film industry value game music, because there's a game soundtrack that that um, it was used on a film trailer a long time ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago, and the music supervisor in LA, she said to me, she said, oh, sorry, we haven't got much money on this one, it's only $100,000, and it was for eight seconds of music. But because it's from a game, it sort of has this sort of credence and this cool factor. Um, so that's really good that, that sort of now, you know, Hollywood and our, our fellow composers working in film television over there, you know, game music does really stand up against, um, you know, we're, we're not the poor relation anymore, and we haven't been for a long time, so that's really encouraging for, for all of us and all gamers. And do you think that's quite frustrating, as James mentioned earlier on, in that video game music seems to be reported as the new thing or the new kid around yeah, on the block? It absolutely drives me nuts. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, every week you see it in the mainstream media. You know, it's, it's forever arriving. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's this thing, games music. People <laughs> listen to it and, and you know, they're, they, no they record... Bleeps and boops. Yeah, no longer bleeps <laughs> and bloops. And uh, they record orchestras, you know. This has been going on for 20 or 30 years I mean, already. Don't tell them that you use like Abbey Road or anything like that, because that might... That's not you either. And the irony no. being that actually bleeps and bloops are back again as well. There's so nothing wrong with bleeps and bloops yeah. anyway. Uh, it's just it's a stupid, it's a false dichotomy. It's a stupid, stupid point to and make. Just as a point, that last slide there was kind of some of the games that James has worked on. Some of. So. <laughs> Got to get a yeah. bigger screen. Oh. So it's interesting to see that, and, and I guess that maybe leads on to your other point, which is live performances in, um, yeah. in games. Um, that I mean, picture was um, from... You had an interesting thing that you were mentioning about the, 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 the picture there that was on the slide. Oh, you mean the, Rune, the, that was... Um, RuneScape? Yeah, that was a, a concert at RuneFest. And um, this was last year. And I guess it wasn't widely publicised. It sort of aimed at the at the fans of RuneScape, the players of uh, RuneScape. And it's just amazing that a single game, I mean, it just shows how, how niche it is, how fragmented the market is now, that a single game can support an, uh, an orchestral concert on that scale and have thousands of people attend it. 
and it only only requires the fans of that game. Yeah. That's incredible. Like, isn't look it? at the diff, diff, distant world and the Zelda. Cut. I was just going to mention um, the video games live concert. Um, mm. I was quite heavily involved with with helping on on the first very show, which was in two thousand five at the. Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, and that was 12,000 people with the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra, and that's normally a very classical venue. They would normally sell about 3,000 tickets during the summer, and there was 12,000 people watching everything from, from Pong to, to Mario to Zelda, um, and that just shows that the age range was colossal, and um, you know, it just shows the popularity now, and there's, so, there's lots of different sort of concert series. I think um, you know, all of us love having our music played live because it's, you know, the fans can really engage with it, and it's an absolute um, joy, really. And it's interesting because that in itself brings its own set of challenges. You know, there, there are certain pieces that you write that are already sort of orchestral pieces because they were written for orchestra, so it, it's fairly easy to translate that. You just got to check that the orchestra that you're, that's playing it is sort of the same lineup as you had in, in the game. But on other games, like we had with Horizon, um, you know, it was a string quartet. So with no, you know, and a bit of flute and, a, and a, you know, and Julie Elvin on, on vocals. So to suddenly have to translate that into an orchestral performance is actually, can be quite tricky. Yeah. Um, on a personal level, it's like, it was particularly special for me the first time it happened because I wasn't actually able to record um, the music live initially. So like, I wrote... I wrote the music for um, my first ever game, uh, Thomas Was Alone, on a two-octave M-Audio keyboard, which I bought for £20 of my friend's second hand. I sold my guitar and my amp so that I could buy a second-hand iMac, and I had an old copy of Pro Tools LE with an M-Box 2, and I did the entire thing on that. So then when it was actually played live at like, a video games concert in the Netherlands to hear hear it brought to life in that manner was just so special to me. So that's kind of another way that it can, you know, have, have hidden depths for, you know, us as composers, if, you know, if you don't have that budget initially, but then it goes on to do well. It's pretty incredible. Mm. And it's, it's really lovely because, I mean, I've seen some video game music live and that's, it, has, it really is, like, incredible to see and to hear. Uh, it's really quite touching sometimes. Um, and I think sometimes I know that other um, composers have games that they've released that people are desperate to hear live but would be so difficult to translate onto a stage you know like for example horizon zero dawn has hours of music so what do you pick you know how would you even consider to do that well it's usually the most popular things isn't it it's usually main themes seem to seem to work quite well as a, as a concert performance because those are the sort of the themes that people really know mm. and generally love and as you get further down the soundtrack you can even see on Spotify you get less and less <laughs> listens so you kind of know game over ones. music yeah <laughs> I mean, it goes back to the symphony really if you go and watch a, a classical concert performance and you're listening to a, um, a Mahler symphony let's say it's 20 minutes long you get sort of the main theme a yeah. <laughs> bit of underscore the love theme and then the, the main theme reprise is pretty much I mean that's in a it's in a very <laughs> um, you know it's a sycophantic way but that's why why um, you know game music concerts are popular because when you do get like main themes or hero mm. themes or boss themes or love themes, um, you know I don't I never put menu menu underscore one in yeah. my uh, <laughs> in my soundtrack concerts. It's quite annoying for me because I usually save the best. Well, in my opinion, what the best piece is to the very end. So like when you see those <laughs> Spotify numbers go down and down and down, I'm literally going to start putting the last track second now. I think just you know it's it's not on. But there's there's something amazing about it as well, isn't it? Is that 
it allows us in, in a way to exp you know expose that music to a new audience mm. and that's what's been really interesting is um some of the first concerts i did were actually in sweden they were quite quick to pick up on that and that was in like 2006 2007 um and what was lovely to see was the the, the age range you know because because normally concerts can be a bit stuffy with you know lots mm. of middle-aged older age people and here was like kids from you know anything from eight to teenagers in a concert hall and and some some said you know i've never been here before and i want to come back because it's amazing and and they're really moved by you know and and it's almost impossible not to be moved by 60 people yeah. you know playing together live instruments the the, the vibrations I and mean, everything it does is is fantastic i know people who are, who are not gamers who really enjoy listening to the podcast and listen to the kind of game music scores i mean there was one um video games live show in london a few years ago where we had to we sold out the afternoon and we had to book the evening slot as well because it was just completely sold out. And that was, the, I think that was the first concert since they refurbished the Royal Festival Hall. And so how many, how many thousands? Uh, I think it seats about just under 3,000. So um, we immediately had to book the, the evening slot as well. Yeah. I mean, game concerts are keeping a lot of concert halls and orchestras in business, mm -hmm. frankly. Yeah. The, the amount of popularity that there is around... I mean, I go to Disney Wells every year and have done for, like, as long as I can remember now. That's okay. just the thing. It's a pilgrimage, and yeah. so many people make it. And, um, yeah, it's just becoming more and more common. Like, there's a Kingdom Hearts World Tour going on. Yeah. Like, as we said, it's, it's just amazing. And I think it's only going to increase as the years go on. Mm, and, like, the, I've judged, I just read this week that the game industry as a whole is worth nearly $7 billion in the UK alone now. And that's just James's fee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, what Joris was saying about um, uh, the age range as well, this is really important because a lot of people would never have seen a live orchestra. And, you know, a lot of young people, like when my nephew was younger, he was thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be so boring and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But you go and see a video game music concert and then you can actually discover a lot of amazing classical music that's not that dissimilar to, to, to what we, we make and, and the music we make for games. You know, there's a lot of very accessible, um, amazing classical music out there. So it's mm. one way of, um, you know, discovering a whole new genre if, if you don't particularly know classical music. Definitely, definitely dig into it. There's some good stuff I mean, that was there. true for myself even. You know, I very clearly remember going to see my first... Uh, concert in orchestra and it, it was Final Fantasy Distant Worlds it's first, my first introduction to that world if you will so I mean it, it opened the door for me mm. and so question um, do you think how from when you began to now how you go about your producing your music now has, has changed certainly with technology etc well, I, mean, I know it certainly has for you David <laughs> <laughs> I think for, I mean, I won't speak I've for got three octaves now, so it's fine. <laughs> You've got two keyboards now. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, um, you know, I sort of came from a classical music background, in a way a tr traditional path, if you like. Um, so when, um, when I recorded Headhunter at Abbey Road back in 2001, which was the first game soundtrack ever to be recorded there um, for me that was just this is how you do it you just do it properly you hire the right people so I think a lot of us are always thinking about you know now we have the technology now we have the the space the bandwidth the memory etc on the hardware um, we're not so constrained at all the only thing that constrains us is time and budget but that's everyone has to put up with that yeah but I think yeah it's interesting is that the, the possibilities are now endless you know in, in terms of what we can do and like you say it's limited by budget but it's interesting you know I, I look at 
you know, studio equipment and things like that. And on one hand, yes, I've got more gear now than I've probably ever had. Um, but in the end, what it starts with for me is, is just a piano patch and just noodling a melody. Mm. And that hasn't changed at all. It's still the same thing. You know, you've got to come up with a melody that evokes something. Uh, and all the other stuff comes later. Um, but it's, it's coming up with the initial nugget that is going to, you know, move you guys. That's, I think that's the, that's the main thing, really. Yeah, I remember you just reminded me um, of a conversation I had with John Hillman. He's the composer for um, That Dragon Cancer, um, which is beautiful. Um, that soundtrack is possibly one of my f absolute favorites. And he, he was um, saying about how it was kind of, he had it laid out and he had it you know, in his head how it was going to sound, etc. and he'd put some stuff down. And then um, one night he was at home, kids were in bed, wife was in bed, and he just sat at the piano and just something came out. And that became one of the pieces. And then that just kind of, wiped out what he'd already done and he's... I mean, I, personally, I actually, uh, and I always have done, I, any sort of main theme or, or an idea like that, I always write away from my studio. I don't even sit in front of a piano. I just sort of let it go around my head and just scribble it on a bit of paper and then I go and sort of, you know, extemporise it and realise it further because I find it really inspirational just sort of getting out of the studio and wandering around or um, most of James Bond game that I did was written on the top deck of a bus, so... There you go. One nine seven. The, the main theme for Horizon came about during a Skype call with with the team um, because I just started on it. And I, I produced a couple of demo tracks because they pitched the idea and there wasn't really anything to look at. And uh, I, to be honest, I didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. <laughs> it was you know like yeah, these robot dinosaurs and then there's this girl and she hunts them and she shoots them down and she gets the bits and like honestly. It sounds absolutely <laughs> crazy. And I couldn't, in my head, picture what this was going to look like. And there, there was, <laughs> well, like that. But there wasn't anything like that at the time. Mm. Um, and I said, we want to do, we want you to do the exact opposite of, of what you've done on the Kill Zones. Like that whole space opera stuff, we don't want any of that. It's got to be small, it's got to be personal. Um, it's got to be, it's got to not be glossy. It's got to sound rough and raw. And we want to use very few instruments. It's got to be tribal. It's got to be electronic, um, and it basically got a whole list of things that it needs to be. And each item on that list contradicted the one that had gone before. So it wanted, they wanted to sound big, but they wanted me to use small ensembles with only a few players. It, got a, it had to sound sort of sci-fi, but the electronics had to be raw and gritty and, and really sort of almost cheap sounding. And I remember just looking at a list and thinking, I actually, I really don't know what I'm going to do for this. And I did a couple of demos that were literally just like just flinging some paint on the wall and they kind of went, yeah, that's in the right direction. And it actually didn't help me at all because I still didn't know. i just done some stuff. I don't know. i just make it up. And as we, as we were sort of talking on this Skype call about what was going to come up next, I said, well, the main thing is we're going to have a trailer for the E3 and that's where we're going to present the game. Um, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be from the, it's going to be captured, but... Um, and, you know, it's, it's got the main character and she's going to be doing this and she's going to be doing that. And as they're sort of talking me through it, I just started getting this idea in my head of a theme. And I literally just had to sort of say, you know, hang on a second, just stop the Skype, just paused it and ran upstairs and noodled something. And that was it. And, and it was really weird. Like, I didn't really, you know, sometimes you really sort of ruminate and, you know, <laughs> that whole thing. I was sitting down and really thinking about it. And this was just, it just came up. Uh, and that was it. And it was actually probably the easiest theme I've ever written. And it's never happened again. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it's really, really 
totally unpredictable, the thing that you, you, you know, you don't, ex you don't even know it's going to be the main theme. Um, I mean, one of my most, well, I say most popular themes, but as far as it goes, uh, is uh, Soviet March from uh, Red Alert 3. And that was, uh, that was a, it's kind of accident that it ended up as the main theme. It was just sort of my way of getting into the project, getting into the sort of frame of mind. It, was a, it started out as a little sketch. And there wasn't actually anywhere to use it in the game. You know, it was just sort of, is it going to go in there at all? And it wound up in the main menu, and it's, you know, probably the single most played track from that game. And, you know, it's had tens of millions of views on YouTube. And, but you just, can't, you just can't predict it sometimes. What's going to resonate? It could be just something you were going to leave out. It's uh, totally unpredictable. I mean, I'm quite embarrassed to say the majority of my ideas tend to start on this. <laughs> uh, I will, I'll hear something fully orchestrated, fully harmonized, everything in my head, and I'll have no way of getting it down, so I'll be in the middle of town, or I've just got out of the shower, so quickly grab the nearest thing to me, sing it into my phone, get on with the rest of your life, forget about it, you come back to it, you listen, oh yeah, I had that awesome idea the other day, I listen back, what the fuck is, that? seriously? <laughs> And then you write something completely different from what you originally had intended, and then that ends up working in a different way. So that is probably a good 70% of my creative method, I would say. I love that, because I, I do sort of a similar thing where yeah. you're sort of humming something, yeah. and I love it when you hear it back and you absolutely have no idea what you think, and you just put your phone in your... My life. Oh, it's like... Yeah. Absolutely no idea what that is or what the intention was. And also on the flip side, when you think you've written the best thing ever and the client or the game director says that's absolutely terrible. It's like... <laughs> and that's that the art of writing a theme, isn't it? It's, it's so hard to externalise that thing. You think you've got it complete in your mind, but actually getting other people to appreciate mm -hmm. it and sort of get in your head, you know, to, to get that your intention across, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned to stop sending rough demos to people because they say just, honestly send us anything just a sketch is fine you send them a sketch like oh yeah no it, it needs fleshing up it i know that i know that you ask for a sketch that so you've got a sketch so now my sketches are essentially fully orchestrated pieces Sound, sounds a bit rough doesn't it <laughs> yes it does it's, it's also Literally. a question of sort of communication between let's say the game director uh, art director composer um you know despite them all being creative roles there's a sort of I guess a terminology that yes. the four of us might use in the pub, but trying to get across how we do what we do and why we do it. And, and like you've said, you know, it's just getting the, you know, you haven't seen any artwork or something, and artwork is very, very important to giving us inspiration. Um, we might just have a, a rough game idea, or, or um, you know, the, the game director might say it's going to be a bit like this, but um, that's where we draw a lot of inspiration from. So I think all of us over time have had to learn a sort of, almost like a shorthand of how we talk to game directors, narrative directors, art directors, because... Despite being creative, it's there's still music is always open to interpretation. Oh, there's a definite disconnect. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's the, the the thing that's interesting, isn't it? Is that on, on and added on on Horizon as well, um, that for about 50, 60 percent of the project, you're not writing to any gameplay or anything. Mm. You're writing to an idea of gameplay that that's described to you, or you might get a really weird video where it's, you know that. They call it play blast, but it might be captured from like a development set where nothing's textured, um, and things will stall. Like you know, they'll, they'll be playing it, but then it will say something like you know, loading mesh dates, and it will the video will literally just hang for about 20 seconds while it's doing something, and then suddenly the character does something, and you realise at the end of it when you've watched it that you're not actually any the wiser, 
and that the artwork, which is often spectacular, mm. uh, because I spend a lot of time on it to sort of prove the concept of the game, is actually much more useful as a, as a tool than, than watching the gameplay. So that really only comes at the end. So That's it's a really good point. And the, there's um, the project I'm on at the moment, which is, unfortunately I can't talk about, but I'm working to uh, black and white pencil sketches, unanimated, and the only audio on it says, um, content is missing, please contact the narrative department. <laughs> so... So it's a really cool project, and I, I know how it's going to turn out. With, but with I love the most inspirational. I love as well when you, um, like, I got some cutscenes, but often the voice isn't recorded until at the very end because cutscenes change all the time, and they're a nightmare because you're scoring something and you've written the music, and then you get an email back later and say, "Oh, we've just added about ten seconds. Is that going to affect anything?" You know, it's like, well, of course it is because there's a ten-second gap that's got nothing. Um, so but they'll use, because they either use people from the department, which is hilarious because they're the worst voice actors ever, <laughs> but what's even better is that they use voice synthesizers. Oh, and there was one sequence in, in Horizon where a whole bunch of people get shot by um, arrows and stuff, and, and so they've just won like a, a major prize and say, I've won a prize, and then they get hit by the arrows and they go, hurting, hurting, hurting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had one in Welsh the other day, which I thought was hilarious. Someone's obviously been going down the Apple menus and uh, I, had, I had a cutscene which was all in Welsh, which is really brilliant. <laughs> so with that, we are coming towards the end of the session, so what I'd like to do, um, if you guys are okay with that, obviously, is to open up the floor to some questions and answers. So if anybody's got any questions, now is your time. Gentleman down the back. Have we got, have we got a mic got anywhere? A mic? Yeah. Thank you. Who was it again? Um, thank you all so much. I just wanted to ask, um, was there any early video game compositions that inspired you on the path that you've taken or, or other pieces of music outside of video games? I mean, I, I can certainly open this one up from, from personal experience. Um, Solomon's Key on the Amstrad 464. I still, that music blows my mind to this day. Okay. Well, I'm obviously of a certain age, but um, one thing that really does stick in my mind was when I was like 11, 12 years old and I was playing the original uh, Outrun arcade cabinet, the Sega driving game, and it was the first, first soundtrack that had proper stereo, proper drums, proper sounding drums, and the composition was, was amazing, so mm -hmm. that, that, um, that stuck in my mind for sure. Very easy answer for me. Uh, Final Fantasy VIII was a uh, very profound experience for me, and uh, the music is almost entirely responsible for that, and I just remember playing it and thinking one day I'd like to have the opportunity to be able to make a new generation feel the way that this has just made me feel, and that kind of really did inspire me a hell of a lot. I think when I was first exposed to games music, it was not that I kind of listened to it away from the game, but I had this kind of geeky fascination with it, how it was created, you know, sort of Commodore 64, era chip music and its distinctiveness. I think that appealed to me. It wasn't necessarily something that I wanted to do myself, but I just love that sort of, that unique sound. You know, you can just recognize games music whenever you hear it, and the sound of arcades, as you were saying, with Outrun. And um, it's not necessarily what I listen to, you know, kind of miss for its own sake, days, but yeah. it's just, you know, it's its own thing. It's a world of its own, mm. aesthetically. Definitely. Anyone else? Jumping down the back. Hi, guys. Um, so I'm really interested to know, obviously, games music has to be both 
a set score that tells a beautiful story that kind of blends in without you really noticing, but also hugely adapted depending on the level of choice the gamer has or what circumstances kind of happen through each scenario. What do you guys consider when writing those pieces? I mean, is it about purely giving the recording artist the freedom to um, interpret the different scenarios or what kind of goes into your thinking? Um, it's pretty much pretty much everything. Um, I mean, as you said, we you know we're, we're all trying to score interactively, um, not just write a nice piece of linear stereo music. So whatever the game is, and, and every game is so completely different to one another, even though a gamer might think they're similar. For, for the work we do, we have to think of every every single scenario that the player may or may not do, when they may or may not do it, what emotion they're going to be feeling. Um, you know, it, there's just so many um, permutations. So we're we're constantly thinking of that. And it's our job to make sure that the soundtrack reflects the emotion, the intensity of the game, et cetera, et cetera, with that, and making it sound musical without making it too noticeable. That's right, and I think you have to, dis- you know, you have to determine whether the, the game is kind of... I mean, I see it as a sort of spectrum from simulation, simulated reality, if you like, kind of something leaning towards a VR, to a narrative game, to something that you kind of impose a story on the player, something more filmic in that sense. I think if you kind of decide where on that spectrum the game is, you know, what the role of the player is, is the player kind of being told a story, progressing a linear story, or are they, do they have control over the game world, that kind of thing. And I think that should inform your choices, both in terms of how you compose and how you implement the music, how you kind of dissect it and uh, how you tackle the whole problem of interactive music. I think um, for me, I I generally tend to work on quite narrative-heavy stuff because they're the... Uh, projects and stories which really tend to appeal to me uh, as a writer. So I think establishing the emotion and what I want to say at that point is really the fundamental aspect. And then once I've done that, I'll then look at how how I can adapt that to serve whatever is happening in the game at that point. So for me, the um, uh, sort of technical side of it will always come after the artistic side. But that's that's just down to the projects that I've worked on. Sometimes, you know, the... it would be completely different if it was a really kind of mechanic-based game, and you know, that, then that would become kind of your prior concern. But uh, for me, it's always about kind of saying saying the right thing first, and then you look at adapting it. I think it's also dependent on the kind of interactivity that you've got, which is kind of dictated by, I guess, the sound team. You know, is it is it sort of horizontal interactivity or vertical? You know, in uh, in, in I say vertical, horizontal. Um, but horizontally means that you know you might have multiple segments that have to connect together. Um, so you got to keep in mind then that melodically you can't do too much because if something's on a switch after four bars, and you might have started the melody in that first four bar section, then it might not necessarily resolve in the other one. So in that case, the music becomes a bit more backgroundy, where you might only have to sort of uh, accompaniment patterns and not necessarily any big main themes. Whereas if it's vertical, it could be uh, in a way of like enabling certain tracks and disabling other tracks that actually then change the, the narrative of the music. Uh, and that does allow you more sort of latitude in terms of bringing more melody in. So that, that in itself dictates also how you end up writing the music. So I think we've pretty much come to the end of the session now. Um, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to our panel, um, to David, James, Richard and Joris um, for coming today because it's been really, really something special. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you.